This week on Geek Explained, to celebrate the premiere of her new show on Disney Plus, we're continuing our month-long spotlight series by taking a look at Charles Soule and Javier Polito's She-Hulk. Welcome back to Geek Explained. I'm your host, a newly 30-year-old Eric Azana, and this week is all about She-Hulk. We are continuing our month-long spotlight series where every single week in the month of August, I take a look at a different comic book and chat you up about why they're so amazing. And this week, to celebrate the release of She-Hulk, Attorney at Law on Disney+, Plus, we are checking out Charles Sewell and Javier Polito's she Hulk run. I think it's the most recent one before obviously the current She-Hulk run that's going on right now. And this was a run I'd never read before, but I've heard differing opinions on it. Some people love it, some people hate it. So I had to get in there and just take a look for myself. I think that just in general, when you hear about a comic book run and that it's very divisive, you should do your due diligence and just read it yourself and figure out how you feel about it. For me, I really enjoyed it. So I'm going to be talking about all the things that I loved, giving you a breakdown of the comic and why I personally think it's probably the best thing to read before watching the new She-Hulk series. We also have, of course, this week's Comics Countdown, where I'll chat you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week. And trust me, there are a lot of comics to pick up this week. Uh, But without further ado, let's go ahead and roll right on to the main event, the main course, the untrait, if you will, as I put the Geeksplain spotlight on Javier Polito and Charles Sewell's She-Hulk. In the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the people are protected by two separate yet equally important groups. The heroes who save them and the attorneys who clean up their collateral damage. But only one can be both. This is her story. Dun dun. She is the sensational She-Hulk. Lawyer by day, superhero by night, and depending on billable hours, sometimes those switch. Jennifer Walters has been a superhero that I have admired from afar for a very long time. I think she is one of the most dynamic legacy characters that we've gotten, certainly in Marvel Comics, and she has a lot of history when it comes to comics that I'm not sure that people know about. Like, I always am surprised at the amount of people who don't know that she was the first Marvel character to regularly break the fourth wall. Deadpool who, She-Hulk, was the one who on every single cover of her 
I think probably most iconic run was poking fun at comic book fans, poking fun at Marvel Comics, and from that series on, She-Hulk has been such a fun character to follow, regardless of whether it's in her own solo books, whether it's in team-up books, you always know that when Jennifer Walters is on the scene, you are going to have a good time. And in 2014, writer Charles Sewell and artist Javier Polito decided to take the fun superhero romps that She-Hulk often has and put them exclusively through the scope of her law practice. Because like another famous superhero lawyer, Jen is not just a superhero. She's also a practicing attorney. And telling this story would be very difficult if you weren't up and up on your law, whether it's by proxy or through your individual experience. And thankfully, Charles Sewell is a practicing attorney. Either he is or was, but he brings a lot of legal expertise to this story. So there's a certain amount of, I I, want to say, just um, authenticity to how he tells the story, the legal terms he uses, how he's able to craft narratives and really... I mean, set up roadblocks for not just the reader, but for the characters in the story to try and succeed in whatever they are trying to accomplish. It's one of the reasons why I was really excited for Charles Sewell to take on Daredevil. And, you know, I still, it, you know, we're going to move on. His run on She-Hulk is not super long, it really only lasted, uh, I think, 12 issues and maybe an annual. I don't think so. But it was 12 issues uh, with some gorgeous covers by Kevin Wada. And it is a mixed bag for sure. But not in the not in the ways that I think people normally criticize this run. Because the thing that I always see that people complain about when it comes to the Soul uh, She-Hulk run is that... The art is bad, and I'm sorry if you really don't like this art, but it's great. It's not your normal cookie-cutter art, nor is it what I would consider usually the art that I gravitate towards. I'm more of a, I guess you could say Saturday morning cartoon-looking art is what I enjoy. Stuff like Chris Somney, Doc Shaner, um... Yeah, it's it's Paolo Rivera. I think that the Marcos Martin, I'm just going to keep listing artists, and it's absolutely not that. The art by Javier Polito is incredibly stylized, which gives this, this run of She-Hulk, I think, an identity all its own, especially when it's stacked up against other She-Hulk runs, which are more... I guess traditional when it comes to their art and their portrayal of She-Hulk. But this book, there's something enchanting about how weird some of the people look in this. Um, It's definitely not your cookie-cutter art. Uh, Jen is really dynamic in everything. I mean, the colors on this book, which are done by um, uh, Munza Vicente for most of the run, with uh, Rico Renzi and Ron Wimberly doing uh, the colors alongside Ron Wimberly's art for issues 5 and 6. 
there's something about her in this book that just makes her pop off of the page, especially when compared to other characters, backgrounds. Uh, you see her at the beginning of the story in a lot of grays, and the moment that she you know, that sets off this whole run when she's basically fired, if not quits, from her law firm. There's this pop of color, and from there, everything becomes so dynamic. Really, I guess, communicating that, you know, that hero's journey, in essence, where the main character is taken from their place of comfort and put into an uncomfortable place to grow. And Jen's story kicks off in the most fun way uh the first issue is called motion where after splitting up with her law firm she is approached by a woman who's trying to sue tony stark uh because she believes that he stole the not the repulsor technology but a type of repulsor technology from her uh from her dead husband and it's in this first issue that it sets up the expectation that oh this isn't going to be like a big time punchy punchy superhero book it's gonna have those elements of course it's she-hulk after all but the focus of this run is on jen's law practice she has to juggle both sides of her life to be able to accomplish the things that she sets out to do and so we see right away in this issue Jen going up against the Stark Industries legal team, all of the legal banter that's involved. It's fascinating that you essentially get a law, I don't want to say crash course because I feel like that's an oversimplification of the actual practice of law, but there is it makes it easier to digest. They communicate well what everything means. If something doesn't make sense, a character brings that up, and so they break that down. And I just think it's really cool how they balance it. Uh, Jen has to deal with the growing pains of starting up her own law practice, of living in this uh, brownstone in New York that is also populated by other superhumans. So you get a little bit of that sense of community that you get from like a Fraction Hawkeye once he buys that apartment building. You get to meet a couple of the characters. The uh, the super Sharon is a wonderfully fun character that dips in and out. And it's also in this, you know, initial planning phase, I guess, this establishing arc where we get to meet Angie. Angie is Jen's paralegal who is hired alongside her monkey, Hey Hey. And there's something weird about Angie. It's it's really strange. The book never 100% answers what Angie's deal is or what her monkey Hey Hey's deal is. But at a certain point, Angie is straight up killed in the book. And Hey Hey brings her back to life before turning into a giant winged monkey that helps She-Hulk beat up another villain. Things just happen. And not in a way that's like oh, this is detracting from my enjoyment of the story, but it's like, oh my god, this is ridiculous. 
And if they never explain it, I'll be totally fine with that. The book is chock full of stories like this, and it's just so much fun. The entire book is a thrill ride that also takes the time to explain to you why practicing law is so important for Jen. It's her identity outside of just being this green rage monster. This is what she dedicated her life to before becoming She-Hulk, and so it's still a serious part of her identity. And you see that in moments where she teams up with Patsy Walker, a.k.a. Hellcat, where the easiest thing you could do, and multiple people say this, the easiest thing you could do is to just be She-Hulk all the time. You could be an Avenger, you could get, you know, whatever going rate they get. But Jen wants to use her tools and the... um, the law degree that she's accrued and her expertise to help people. And it's not always about the money, which they make painfully clear at the beginning of this when the woman, you know, she's able to help this woman out and she doesn't expect payment back. But you do see the money struggles that you would see in like a Spider-Man book. New York is incredibly expensive and it's only gotten more expensive and Jen has to deal with money troubles alongside building up a client list, you know, battling with other lawyers alongside her doing superhero stuff. Uh, There's this great moment in early in the series where she is facing off against these two aim agents who have secretly taken over this warehouse and one of them has patsy walker by the neck and it's like you know don't don't come over here don't do that and you know or i'm gonna kill her and jen basically says okay you're gonna give her to me and the (laughs) the aim soldier's like why would i do that she says because right now i just want to get my friend home safe that's all i care about right now but if you don't give her to me if you hurt her then i'm going to want to peel you out of that suit and beat you to death aim the aim guy says no way you'd never you're an avenger a hero you guys don't do that she says yeah genius right now i'm neither i'm a woman whose life seems to fall apart a little more every single day the way i picture it taking out a piece of garbage like you might give my life a little meaning so take a look look me in the eyes right now and tell me again what i wouldn't do and there's this great just double page spread of just her eyes and anyone who wants to say the art in this book sucks can re-examine what they think good art is i get that art is subjective but you cannot tell me that this is bad art And so she's able to balance that. She's able to balance, you know, being this uncontrollable green rage monster with these moments of her putting her lawyerisms and her expertise in law to work. That was a deposition for any, you know, I would say that's as good a deposition as you would hear in any court case for the reason to convince this aim soldier to put her friend down. And it just gets kind of wilder from there. Uh, the next arc, she deals with the son of Dr. Doom, Christoph uh, Vernard, who is trying to get basically sanctuary and asylum in the U.S. away from Latveria and his father. And so you see this great story of Jen trying to work her legal damnedest to get this man free from the 
clutches of Doctor Doom. And so she's trying to, you know, bring him all over town, trying to get him to to do the proper paperwork. And then when Doctor Doom does show up with his Doombots, it turns into this race against time to try to get his asylum, uh, I guess, permit to be approved by a judge who owes her a favor while also battling against Doombots. And though they are able to successfully get it uh, approved, Dr. Doom pops back in and makes off with his son. And so you get to see that it doesn't always pay off. Like, any good legal drama or any good just lawyerific show, we're getting a lot of Ally McBeal, where it's like not the good guys don't always win. And I really appreciate that. You know, there's a lot that can be said about trying to make sure that the heroes win every time and that it's important to tell the story of good triumphing over evil. But especially when you take a look at characters who can be more street level, like this version of She-Hulk and many characters who deal in the legal system, it's not always that black and white. There's a lot of gray that goes into it. Uh, We do see... As well, She-Hulk interacting with Matt Murdock in this series. Uh, They interact a couple times during the first half of the run where she's talking to him about, you know, just getting advice, getting legal advice, which is really cool. You don't often see two characters who have the same, like, outside of their heroics profession talk and just chat and you know, talk inside baseball about stuff. And this is during the Wade Daredevil run, the correct and best Daredevil run. You can fight me on Twitter. Feel free. You'll be talking to a wall. And it's just really cool. I just, I love listening to people talk using jargon from their professions. Like, if you... If I'm able to listen to two people who are like in an engineering field, I'm not going to understand what they're saying, but I'm going to really enjoy the conversation because they are going to be able to talk about concepts and use jargon that I won't know, and that gets my brain working for some reason. So I love having the two of them talk and the two of them exchange notes and talk about you know, the trials and tribulations that they have to face as superhero lawyers. And when She-Hulk does get the advice from Matt, like, hey, you should probably leave this Doctor Doom thing alone, She-Hulk, of course, says, no. And you see her invade Latveria and go up against an army of Doombots to try and get Kristoff out. And so we get to see as much punchy-punchy as you could want in a She-Hulk book, but it is through her exhausting all of her legal options that she decides, okay, I'm going to let my fists do the talking. Which leads to this really ridiculous and amazing moment where She-Hulk is facing off against this giant skyscraper-sized Doombot, and she brings up to him, like, look, dude, you're really overbearing to your son, and he doesn't want to follow in your footsteps. And he's like, whatever. No. There's no way. And then Kristoff comes up in a little flying Vespa scooter and he's like, look, dad, I just, I I don't want to do this. And Doom's like, what? He he does the, uh, the really ridiculous Darth Vader, what? 
and it's just really fun and it shines a light on dr doom and again makes the case for why he's the best marvel villain maybe the best comics villain and that you're able to just like any comic book character give them dimension and maybe sometimes make them look silly while also not undermining how dangerous they are as characters and so the uh dr doom and Kristoff arc does end happily we get to see that Kristoff uh, gets to forge his own path with the express uh, permission and blessing of Doom. And as, you know, She-Hulk returns, we get the Blue File arc. And the Blue File arc is very interesting because this one essentially takes on the rest of the run, whether it's in the forefront or whether it's in the B-plot. And the... Uh, the blue folder arc starts off with a big artist change. Uh, Ron Wimberly does the art for uh, issues five and six. And while I will say I don't love the art in these two, I kind of wish it had just stuck with Javier Polito. Um, I'm not going to say it's bad because, again, it is telling its own story visually and also, I think, with the characters involved because we find out that there are several characters connected to this mystery that is the blue file we see um characters like dr druid the shocker tigra uh, monica rambeau and she hulk are involved in this strange lawsuit that was basically doesn't make any sense right there's they break down that uh this let's see here the the all of the defendants here are uh we've got wyatt wingfoot uh greer grant nelson tigra shocker um and they're all being sued by george saywitz this person who no one knows no one has any recollection of why there is a pending lawsuit out there for them but she-Hulk has decided, I'm going to find out what the deal is. And so she makes her first stop to the Shocker. And so we get to see a little bit of fun where she's chasing him down. And he's, you know, she comes to his apartment and he's not ready for her. So we see him running around with his uh, Viper gauntlets and his mask and just his underwear. Because he just wasn't prepared to fight an Avenger today. And it's really, it's fascinating to me because this sets up one of my favorite fictional tropes, a mystery. I love me a mystery. And so we see uh, Angie and She-Hulk's uh, separate, trying to track down leads, trying to figure out what's, you know, what's going on with this, uh, with this file. Why is it, uh, why is this George Saywitz person suddenly, you know, suing them and why is it years old and why is it in north dakota like for a town that seemingly doesn't even exist like it is fascinating to me how this works it's really really cool and there's this weird trigger like anyone who starts to hear the name george saywitz suddenly just goes berserk and so you get to see all of these different characters trying to figure out what the problem is and why this blue file has such a hold on them. Um, it's fascinating, and I really, really enjoy it. And the 
if the blue file doesn't get resolved in this two-issue arc. It takes all the way to the end of the book where you are trying to figure out, okay, what the hell is going on here? Uh, and why do they keep coming back to this hero uh, named Kevin Trench, this former hero who has been out of the game and retired for a good long while. So it's wonderful. I just I really enjoy it. Again, like I said, the art for issues five and six isn't my favorite, but again, I'm not gonna say it's bad because it's just a different artist interpretation. I don't know what else to tell you. Uh, my favorite two arcs of this though are the Ant-Man arc and the Captain America arc. Uh, the Ant-Man arc comes right after the initial blue folder or blue file arc where Jen decides, okay, I'm gonna table this because I don't want to deal with all the craziness that's going on here and we see that they are dealing with a patent dispute these two people have come up with basically a competitor to pin particles and one of them was about to sell the patent to a buyer where the other partner didn't want to so they took the uh, basically the formula and hid themselves in their backyard so we see that dr hank pym is called in who reveals himself as the buyer and he tigra and she hulk shrink down into this guy's backyard to try and find him and so we see that we just get this really fun uh, couple issues where they're trying to Jumanji their way through this backyard. Hank Pym swooped up by a bird really early, and so it leaves uh, Patsy and Jen to try and find this guy while also trying to combat all of the critters that are in this guy's backyard. Uh, there's this great through line that is that kind of comes to a head in this arc where she hulk kind of looks at patsy as like her screw-up friend where patsy is tr constantly trying to prove herself she hulk doesn't really trust her in that way like we've all had those friends where we don't trust them with like really big stuff we love them but we don't really like trust them with important things because you know for one reason or another there are just other people who are better suited to take care of those things and Patsy is struggling with the idea that she is that friend for She-Hulk. And so the two of them have to come to terms on leaning on each other and trusting each other. Uh, Jen needs to learn to let go and trust Patsy, while Patsy needs to learn that she has to take charge sometimes and prove to She-Hulk that she can be the responsible one. And so they are able to, of course, get that resolved, and it leads into my favorite arc of the entire run. Uh, it starts in issue 8, and it is the Captain America arc. This is, again, during Marvel Now, when it's Old Man Steve, uh, Sam Wilson is the current Captain America, and someone is suing Steve Rogers for wrongful death. I absolutely love this arc basically this goes all the way back to steve's origins pre captain america like he isn't even um he isn't even being sued as captain america he's being sued as puny steve rogers and so we see that 
there was this uh, character who prior to Steve getting the super soldier serum, the two of them grew up together. Uh, he had a brother who got in with some Nazis over in California. And so Steve and his buddy hopped on a train. They went to go and try and save his brother. Something happened. His brother died. And so this character on his deathbed blames Steve for the death of his brother. And so he's being sued for wrongful death by that character's family. And though Jen, in her infinite wisdom as a practicing attorney, knows several different loopholes to get this case thrown out, Steve is adamant that she not do that. He wants to win the right way. And that's, again, owing to Steve Rogers being Steve Rogers. There's no underhanded tricks. He doesn't want any loopholes. He wants She-Hulk to win the case outright. Which is frustrating because they're being tried, or he is being tried in California, where Jen doesn't have a license to practice law. So she reaches out to her buddy Matt Murdock once again, who lives in San Francisco at this time, asking him to use his law practice so that she can be an independent contractor through them to be Steve's attorney for the case. However, for whatever reason, Matt, once he hears about the case, doesn't help her. Thankfully, She-Hulk's able to go through another firm, and when she arrives on the scene for the trial, she finds out that the plaintiff's lawyer is Matt Murdock. So we get the trial of the century, someone suing Steve Rogers, of all people, tried by two lawyers named Jen Walters and Matt Murdock. This is, again, the prime example of the focus on the legal proceedings in this book and where Charles Sewell really gets to stretch and show off his legal acumen because all of the vernacular, all of the verbiage, even the voices he has for Matt and for Jen in this Captain America arc are straight up from the mind of someone who knows his legal shit. And I absolutely love it. You can feed this directly into my veins. I love court dramas, but it's really fun to see how that is translated into this comic book. And one of the things I'm most excited about for the She-Hulk Attorney at Law series. Uh, the series is funny, and I'll talk about it a little bit later and why I think this is this works so well. And I can see a lot of the DNA of this book in, in at least the couple trailers I've seen. I haven't watched all the trailers because I hate how much they show. So uh, let's talk about the book some more. I, man, it's great. There's this great opening uh, remarks. I, I just want to read it because I love the vernacular and the voice that uh, Sewell has for, uh, for Matt. He says, Welcome, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, and thank you so much for your time. Serving as jurors is inconvenient, but it's also crucial. Without you, there is no justice. My name is Matt Murdock. I'm the attorney for the plaintiff, which means I get to talk to you first before the defense has its shot. To begin... I'd like to tell you about something known as a dying declaration. 
you might think of it as a deathbed confession, though that is an oversimplification. For one, the testimony you're about to hear is not a confession. It is an accusation. Ordinarily, the rules of evidence prevent what is known as hearsay. When one person tells the court that they heard someone say, there's too much opportunity for confusion. After all, how can we really know what someone meant when they said something if we weren't there to hear it ourselves? You all played the telephone game when you were kids, I'm sure. It's like that. An exception to the hearsay rule exists when a person makes a statement believing they are about to die. A dying declaration. That testimony is admissible because of a a long-held belief that people cleave to the truth on their deathbeds. Officer McKinley here was put in the unique position of hearing the dying words of Harold Fogler not long ago. Mr. Fogler was the grandfather of the plaintiffs in this case, and his testimony was directly applicable to the matters you're about to consider. And then he goes on to ask this officer about what he saw or what he heard. And so we get the story that I just recounted to you, and Matt says, So that's where this all begins. The last words of a man who wanted the truth to be known. This is a wrongful death lawsuit, which means the family of the deceased, poor young Sam, we just heard about, are suing the plaintiff, Mr. Rogers, for monetary damages based on the idea that if he hadn't acted as he did, Sam would still be alive today. As I continue to present my case, you will hear further evidence to prove that the death of Sam Fogler was caused by the wrongful act, as well as the neglect of Steve Rogers. And that Sam's family, his extended family, his descendants, suffered monetarily in connection with his death. And it's just so cool to get something like this. I really enjoy, like, getting this this battle of wits between two characters who you would often see fighting against the forces of evil together. It's just, it's my shit. I love this. Uh, We see the cross-examinations between Matt and Jen. I also love there's a great, there's a really great touch that that Polito does in all of these courtroom scenes where, and I don't know if this is intentional or not, I'm sure it was, that whenever Jen is sharing the, um, sharing a panel with someone, she's always obscured. Like, she is too big for the panel. There's a great example where we see Matt. It's the exact same frame using the exact same individuals, where we see the jurors in the background. Matt is cross-examining a witness, or I believe he's an expert witness, where he's talking to him, everybody's in frame, copacetic, classic comics. And then the exact same frame is used, no one is moved, except instead of Matt, it's Jen. And she is towering over this person to the point that she is busting out of the frame her the top of her head isn't even contained inside of the panel and i love that there's scenes where she's sitting with steve at their um at their table in the court in the courtroom and you can only fit so much of her while steve is completely seen in the uh in the panel it's just really cool i just love touches like that and again Some people say this is bad art, and I just can't agree with them on any level. So the story continues. We get to see how uh, Jen is trying to use her, her expertise. At one point, she's like, Matt's 
fought alongside you. We can do a whole, you know, we can give the argument that he is not fit to be able to try or to be able to prosecute you based on your shared history. And Steve's like, no, no, we have to do this the right way. I want you to beat him. And you see how Jed is just like, she's slowly cracking. She's like, dude, why are you making this so hard for me? And I'd, I'd love it. I really, really do. Uh, we get to see uh, Daredevil and She-Hulk kind of interact and talk about how, again, it's not personal. It's just their professions. And we find out that this great twist about Steve contacting uh, Matt beforehand, that's really fun. And ultimately, again, it comes to this big climax where Steve has to take the stand. And we get his version of the events. And we see that Jen and Matt are each so good at what they do. And when it comes down to it, the truth falls somewhere in between where they are. I love this. And there's also this sequence at the end where they are giving their uh, final arguments. We see both of them full page of just the two of them doing their thing, speaking their jargon, uh, giving their all to try and win this case. And it's one of those things where, again, like, Matt is at no point um, portrayed as a villain in this. It's always this moment of, like, when he makes a great point or when he, you know, sets things up, it's like, God damn, he's so good at what he does. And it's frustrating because we're rooting, obviously, for She-Hulk because she is the lead and she's trying to protect Captain America, the symbol of liberty. And it's really cool that by the end of this, once the trial concludes, no one's mad at each other. The final scene is all three of them. It's Jen, it's Matt, it's Steve, just walking around on what I assume is Santa Monica Pier. Uh, just walking around and talking about the case. And then they go right back into trying to take down some bad guys again. Uh, Dr. Faustus is involved, which is really fun. He's one of the... I would say one of the most underserved Captain America villains, and I always love when he just pops up. So this was a really fun time, and then it brings us to the final arc, which is once again revisiting the blue folder or the blue file. And so for the, for the final two issues, I don't want to spoil it. I think it's a book that you should absolutely read. Uh, but I will say that the uh, the end of the Captain America arc involves Jen, Angie, and Patsy returning to their office saying, like, we need to just lay low. That was a lot. So we're just going to hang out, not deal with any surprises. They come into their office to find Titania sitting in Jen's chair, holding up the blue file. And then they immediately get into a brawl. And so we see that the uh, conspiracy behind the blue file is deeper and darker than we even imagined. We get to see that how we we get to see what happened with this incident that for some reason has shifted reality and has messed with everyone's memory of it and we get to see the person who's truly involved why this happened what happened and by the end of it Jen comes away with a greater understanding of the blue file and her participation in it as well as a 
altered perspective on some of the people involved. So I just, I really enjoy it. I think it's a great, um, I think it's a great book. It ends also in just the most perfect way. Um, Sharon brings a new file for a new, uh, uh, for new, I guess, court summons where the city of New York is suing the Inhumans for damages. And we see that the uh, prosecution is being handled by her old law firm. And so Jen says, uh, you know what? Send over a note on our very fanciest stationery. Prepare it for my signature. Just four words. Shouldn't take you long. See you in court. And that's how it ends. I, just, I, I, I love it. I love it. It's a fun ride with Jen that deals with both sides of her life. Oftentimes, the law practice and her career as a lawyer takes a back seat to to her superheroics and doesn't always feature them as prominently as I think they should because it's, again, a big part of her life. And this book puts them at the forefront, and I really, really do love that. I love how much of Sewell's expertise is shown off here. I love how much he seems to really enjoy writing the character. And I love the fact that he finds the entire law proceeding of most of this book fascinating and he brings you as a reader in to enjoy it as well um he wrote this quote in his uh, farewell letter to the series where he said i think the best superhero stories are aspirational they aren't just thrill rides they're mirrors showing us what we might be if we become our best selves and the best superhero stories are the ones where the heroes themselves aspire to reach that same goal too and every once in a while after great sacrifice and incredible effort they get there that's Jennifer Walters to a T, if you ask me. There's no point in this book where it feels like her career as a lawyer is tertiary or just tacked on. Her life is her life, and she is able to not always fairly or not always evenly, but balance her two her two lives essentially to try and live her best life she's trying to do the best that she can just like anybody else is and she's trying to make the best of juggling a lot of things that are on her plate uh that's something that i really hope that they touch on in the disney plus series i'm really excited for it if you haven't uh if you haven't gotten that by now if you can't tell i think that the series looks really fun but on top of that i think there's going to be a fair amount of this book in that uh in that series there's at least some fourth wall breaking which is fun for the classic roots of the character but it looks like there's also going to be a lot of law proceedings there's shots of her in court they just recently uh released this this vignette parodying the uh i think it was the law and order opening and it's just really cool uh there's ads in la here all over town that look like just lawyer billboards that you will see all over LA giving giving you a phone number to call and it's this you know it's this uh, automated message that's really fun and 
I just, I'm really excited for this. I think the show has a lot of potential. And I think if it takes any DNA from this book, we're going to be in good hands. Because ultimately, the thing that I've always loved about, you know, about courtroom dramas, about courtroom dramedies like an Ally McBeal or something of that nature is these characters who are just struggling to make their way. It's the it's the reason I love, you know, I love profession dramas or profession comedies. Like, I'm a huge fan of Scrubs. There are some things about that show that have aged poorly. But what I love about shows like that is that they are people in their careers just trying to get by. And it's something that we can all, in any, I think in any walk of life, we can sympathize with, we can relate to. We're all just trying to make our way in this messed up, ridiculous world that we live in. And in the She-Hulk run by Charles Sewell and Javier Polito, that's exactly what she's trying to do too. She's trying to make the best of frustrating situations. She deals with losing. She deals with people getting the upper hand on her, outsmarting her, but she uses what she does best to achieve her goals and to ultimately come out on top. And as Charles Sewell said, the best superhero stories are aspirational. And what's more aspirational than an underdog fighting against people who do wrong to other people, whether it's on the streets as straight-up villains or whether it's in court trying to take people for all they own and i think that if you are looking for something that uh will get you ready for this she hulk series if you're looking for something that will you know scratch that itch of uh court drama if you're just looking for an aspirational good old comic book then charles sewell and javier polito's she hulk is for you the defense rests Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I'll chat you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week, whether it's at your local comic book shop, and comicsology, or however you get your comics. These are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. But before we get into this week's books, we got to take a look back at last week's books with the Geeks Playing Pick of the Week of last week. And we had some contenders last week, I'm not going to lie, but ultimately I chose AXE Judgment Day number two, written by Kieran Gillen with art by Valerio Shiti. This event just rules, man. I really, really dig it. I really enjoy the incredible art, the writing. I understand Kieran Gillen isn't for everybody, but I'm really enjoying it. Cannot wait to continue on this crossover event. But that's last week's books. This week, For the first time in a little while, we've got 12 books to talk about. So let's just go ahead and dive into this, shall we? First off, uh, we have X-Force number 30. This is written by Benjamin Percy with art by Robert Gill. This is another uh, Judgment Day tie-in. So that's the reason that I am involving it on this list. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Deadpool joins and Craven's hunt begins. X-Force has taken some lumps, but a new era begins as old-school X-Forcer Wade Wilson makes his grand return. Well, 
grand for him, necessary for the team, as X-Force needs all the help it can get in the fallout from the Hellfire Gala and the revelations of AXE. Plus, find out why Craven the Hunter is involved in the start of a landmark storyline. I am also interested, because Craven got a great little tie-in in uh, Devil's Reign, so I'm hoping it's just as good, if not better, this time around. Next up, we have Dark Crisis Young Justice number three. This is written by Megan Fitzmartin with art by Laura Braga. And I am going to be honest with you folks. I'm not loving it. I'm not loving it. I'm really kind of just collecting it for my completionist self, uh, which is just how I am and I can't control it. But I will say... Last issue brought back uh, Captain Boomerang. So it's not my preferred version of Captain Boomerang, and it makes a whole lot of things a whole lot stranger, but I am willing to give this another shot purely for my boy Boomer. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Sins of the Old. In response to their lack of gratitude, the world holding Superboy, Impulse, and Tim Drake captive has brought back the three villains who have caused them the most pain to keep them in their place. Deathstroke, Captain Boomerang, and Lex Luthor. Old wounds will open, Wonder Girl and her search team will have to hurry up because there's no young justice left to save. Yeah, so again, I don't know, we'll see, but uh, I'm hoping that Boomer brings some uh, much-needed levity and kind of course corrects. Next up, we have another AXE Judgment Day tie-in. It's Death to the Mutants, number one. This is written by Kieran Gillen with art by Gyu Villanova. Um, this cover slaps. I'm just going to let you know that right now. I believe that's an Assad Ribbit cover. Um, we are going to, I'm assuming, get the fallout of all the shit that's happened so far. Uh, so let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. The Mutants are Deviants. Eternals are coded to correct excess deviation. The mutants are eternal. Mars colonizers, ever spreading. Eternals know what they should do. Our heroes don't want to, but can they resist the murderous designs coded into their body as surely as any sentinel? And if they can't, can anyone survive the coming judgment? So I'm interested to see where this places, like if this is between issues one and two, because the end of issue two was uh, a lot. So I guess we'll just have to see, but I'm definitely interested. Next up, another uh, Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths tie-in. We have The Flash, number 785. It's written by Jeremy Adams with art by Amanke Noelpan. And I've actually been really enjoying this this tie-in. It's brought back the Flash family. We've got my boy, Jay Garrick, helping out alongside Jesse Quick, alongside Wally. We've got all our favorite Flash family members looking for Barry Allen. So I am very excited to pick this up. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. The search for Barry Allen continues. Just when the speedsters seem to have snapped Barry out of Pariah's clutches, Wallace seems to be falling in. And the creator of Barry's mind prisons isn't about to let the team of speedsters just run off. And even if they could, where exactly would they run to? The Dark Crisis tie-in storyline races to its conclusion. I wonder if that means this is the last one of the Flash tie-ins, but either way, 
Very good stuff. Really been enjoying the story. Next up, speaking of enjoying stories, Firepower number 23. Written by Robert Kirkman, art by Chris Somney. This book freaking rules. And this cover is incredible. I love this. Just, ah, so good. Um, really quick and simple uh, solicit. Face-to-face with the dragon. Tells you all you need to know, as does the cover. Owen Johnson versus the dragon. We are going to see some fire fly. Really excited. Next up, we have Strange Number 5. This is written by Jed McKay with art by Marcella Ferreira. And this one is looking to be a big one for uh, Clea Strange's time as the Sorcerer Supreme. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Back from the dead. Dead heroes and villains alike have been reanimated as ghoulish versions of their past selves. Now, it's up to Strange and the Harvestmen to make sure these dead supers stay dead. But what happens when the next reanimated hero is Clea's dead husband, Stephen Strange? So the whole thing so far has been Clea trying to figure out how to bring back Steve. And... That's that feels weird, Stephen. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why. It just feels weird. Uh, trying to be bring back Stephen, and it looks like she's gonna get her wish. But it's that classic monkey's paw. We're gonna see what happens here. Very much looking forward to this. Next up is do a power bomb number three, written and illustrated by Daniel Warren Johnson. I love this book. I love it to death. It's incredible. Uh, we got a great, great last page reveal at the end of last issue that I called from the very first issue. And I'm very excited to continue on this story. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Lona and Cobra's son strategize as best they can for their first round tournament matchup with the mighty Orangabang. Watch out for their finishing move. I cannot wait to see this. We are seeing uh, Lona and uh, Cobra's son go up against a tag team of orangutans. I mean, come on. What more do you want from this book? It's amazing. I love it so much. Cannot wait to pick this up. Next up, speaking of books, can't wait to pick up Batman Superman World's Finest number six, written by Mark Wade, uh, art by Travis Moore. We'll change up from the usual Dan Mora. Um, this book has been incredible. I've been loving, 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 loving this book. I'm hoping that the artist change isn't permanent because I love the combination of Wade and Mora, but. I do like Travis Moore's art very much, and so I'm looking forward to this. Um, Mark Wade has been getting a lot of shit over the last week uh, due to his Daredevil run because people suck. So let me just unequivocally say, if Twitter isn't clear, Mark Wade's Daredevil run is my favorite Daredevil run. It's also the best Daredevil run. Bite me. And Mark Wade is a good writer. So again, bite me. Anyway, World's Finest has been a wonderful book. They just wrapped up the Neja arc, and I'm interested to see where they go next. I love this cover. Showing off uh, the Flying Grayson himself, Dick Grayson. Can't wait to read this. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. The Flying Grayson flies through time. The Dark Knight and the Man of Steel might have been victorious in their battle against the dreaded Devil Neja, but were they, though? More on that to come, kids. But there's one thing they forgot in all the madness. Dick! (laughs) I love how that's the official synopsis. Uh, Robin the Boy Wonder is lost in time like some kind of chrono home alone, and to find him, Batman and Superman will need to get creative. 
So yeah, it's Dick Grayson, Fallen Through Time. Cannot wait to pick this book up. Next up, we have X-Men number 13. This is another Judgment Day tie-in, as well as continuing on the incredible Duggan X-Men run. Uh, obviously written by Jerry Duggan, art by Carlos Villa. Cannot wait to pick this up. I've, again, been loving Judgment Day so far. It's been really good. I'm interested to get some more of the uh, X-Men's perspective on this, though. So let's dive into the synopsis. The Inheritors of the Earth. The mutants are the next stage of evolution. Evolution depends on a mutation of genes, the genes of the offspring deviating from their progenitors. Some would call the X-gene excess deviation. Those people are going to need to be taken down a few pegs. So this might be the first issue where we get to see the X-Men fight back. Very interested in this. I really enjoy this cover of Cyclops and Icarus showing off their eye beams, while Jean and Cersei show off their mind beams. So very much looking forward to this. Can't wait to pick this up. Next up, we have Nightwing number 95. Speaking of people writing incredible runs who are getting undo shit for no reason uh written by tom taylor art by bruno redondo i love this book i love it to death it's wonderful um the covers have been incredible the art's been great and the writing is classic tom taylor i don't know what you expected looking forward to this let's get into the synopsis heartless has an extra giant jar that has blockbuster's name on it but as a man of refined taste heartless doesn't just collect any type of heart he waits for someone to experience a specific emotion in particular before taking it all away from them and adding it to his collection. Does Nightwing have what it takes to save the life of the very man who's been trying to take everything away from Dick Grayson, including his life? I am very interested in this. We are heading towards, I think, the big conclusion of the uh, Heartless saga. And I'm interested to know what Heartless's deal is. I'm starting to think Heartless might be a robot. Just going to put it out there. I'm sure that's not the case and it's going to be a reveal of someone we know. But I think I'm starting to... Can you imagine? I've been watching a lot of Batman the Animated Series recently. Can you imagine if this turns into a Silicon Soul type thing? Where it's just a robot trying to collect people to figure out how to feel? Be incredible. I'd be really into that. Um, yeah, so I've been loving the book. I think it's absolutely worth your time. Go pick it up. Next up, we got Daredevil number two. This is written by Chip Zdarsky and Anne Nesenti with art by Chris Somney and Klaus Jansen and John Romita Jr. and Alex Maleev and Paul Azaceta and Mike Hawthorne and Phil Noto and Rafael Della Torre and, of course, Marco Cicetta. Why all of these writers? Well, of course... Because it's not just Daredevil number two, it's also Daredevil number 650. 650 issues of Daredevil, they're doing their big landmark thing here for The Man Without Fear. Really, really excited about this. Uh, let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. The Red Fist Saga, part two. Daredevil number 650. After Devil's Reign, everything it has ever meant to be Daredevil has changed. Thanks to Elektra and her newfound role as the woman without fear, Daredevil is more ambitious than ever. With a who's who of creators from across the fabled character's history and some can't-miss surprises along the way, this oversized epic kicks the next year of Zdarsky and Chichetto's landmark run on Daredevil off in explosive style. Really excited about this. I also love that Elektra is staying Daredevil. 
I love it. I love it, I love it, I love it. I think the argument could be made that the rebrand here should have been Daredevils, plural, but I am still very excited to pick this up. I've been loving, loving, loving all of the uh, Zdarsky Daredevil run, the Zdarsky Chichetto run, and oh my gosh, Chris Somney drawing Daredevil again. I'm there immediately. So I'm very excited to pick this up. It is probably co-big book of the week for me, paired up with the other big book of the week, the book I think you should absolutely be picking up, which is Batman One Bad Day, The Riddler, number one. This is written by Tom King, art by Mitch Jarrods. It's King, it's Jarrods, reunited, and it feels so good. And they're talking about The Riddler, a character that Tom King keeps, like, just, like, touching the surface with, I feel. He hasn't had a grand Riddler story. You could say War of Jokes and Riddles, and I do really enjoy that story. But the framing device of it and the fact that it more focused on the conflict and Batman's perspective on it rather than Riddler's real, like, I don't know his angle on things makes me really excited to see what they're going to do with him here let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis tom king and mitch jareds the eisner award-winning duo behind mr miracle the sheriff of babylon and strange adventures reunite to dive deep into the mind of batman's most intellectual foe the riddler the riddler has killed a man in broad daylight for seemingly no reason but well there's always a reason The Riddler is always playing a game. There are always rules. Batman will reach his wit's end trying to figure out the Riddler's true motivation in this epic psychological thriller. This is not to be missed. I realized while reading this that he just finished a Riddler-focused story, which is Batman Killing Time. So, for anyone who's been yelling at me for the last couple minutes, I remembered. It's great. Wonderful book. Riddler's great. Which, again... Makes me excited to read this book. Uh, King and Jareds have been hyping this up to the moon. I'm very excited about this. And again, I think if I had to do like a trifecta, the three that I'm the most excited for this this week, it's probably Riddler, uh, Daredevil, and do a powerbomb. Though I'm, ugh, I'm also really excited about firepower. Oh, and I'm really excited about X-Men too. Oh man, this is a tough, this is a tough week. This is a really, really good week of comics. So uh, to recap, We've got X-Force number 30, Dark Crisis Young Justice number 3, Axe Death to the Mutants number 1, Flash number 785, Firepower number 23, uh, Strange number 5, Dual Powerbomb number 3, Batman Superman World's Finest number 6, X-Men number 13, Nightwing number 95, Daredevil number 2, and Batman One Bad Day, The Riddler number 1. Oh man really excited about nightwing too i've been really enjoying strange oh flash is really good too and that is gonna bring us to the wrap-up if this is your first time joining us on the geek explained podcast and you like what i do here feel free to subscribe to us on the podcasting platform of your choice and give us a rating and review we drop new episodes every single wednesday and honestly ratings reviews and especially subscriptions really does help me and the podcast out in this weird podcasting algorithm space raises up our stock and gets us out and into the orbit of listeners just like you And if you want to give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever you want to call it, I will read your review here live on the podcast. 
you can write literally whatever you want. I will be forced to read it. If you give me those five stars, the sky is the limit. And you will be able to join the likes of our Red 13, including Seafire ND, Josh with Panels to Pixels, Matt Draper, Burrito Man 88, Doug from For Every Kind of Geek, Don Swanson, That Guy Brian, Mouth Dork Dallas Meeks, Amazing Spider Fan, Alok and AZ, Sass, and Jedi Jesse 20. Want to say a huge thank you to these fine folks for their reviews, and I cannot wait to hear yours. If you want to be part of the Geeksplain mailbag, you can send your emails to geeksplain at gmail.com. Put mailbag in the subject header and I will read it here. If you have a message for me, you have a question, or maybe you want some recommendations or references for something we haven't covered on the podcast yet, or if you want to request an episode, feel free to send your emails and I will address them here on the show. If you want to keep up to date with the podcast, participate in polls that decide future episodes, uh, get teasers, and announcements for the podcast feel free to follow us on the socials instagram and twitter at geeksplained pod is the handle at geeksplained pod i'm a little bit more active on twitter than i am on instagram but i try to keep up to date with both of those platforms um Discourse has been a plenty on comics Twitter over the last week. So if you want to join in the fun, feel free to join us on there. And then finally, every single Friday, I, alongside my amazing friends, are going through every single issue of every single volume of a bunch of different comics as part of our Geek Splained book club we just wrapped up the days of thunder a 10-part series where we took a deep dive into the entire jason aaron thor saga and this friday we are doing a little after the thunder special epilogue where we are going to be going through all 10 issues of jane foster valkyrie written by jason aaron and al ewing and art by Kafu. I love his art. I am very excited to chat about this. This is our little epilogue episode for the Days of Thunder before we hop into what's next on the book club. So keep your ears and eyes peeled. Make sure you tune in on Friday and every Friday for the Explained Book Club. Be there or be square, not a circle. But that is going to do it for this week's episode. Next week, continuing on our month-long Geeksplained Spotlight series, we're taking a bit of a detour away from superheroics and diving into a book that is a little personal for me, like the previous two weeks haven't been personal <laughs> with my existential duology. Uh, we are going to be diving into Jean Lun Yang's American Born Chinese. So tune in for that next week. Same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for the Geek Explained podcast, I've been Eric Azana. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe, and we will see you next time. 